We're in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in the 10th chapter today. And I want you to imagine yourself in this situation. Um, someone is talking bad about you to other people. I know that's never happened to anybody here, right? But somebody's talking bad about you, and they're telling other people behind your back, and uh, they're just saying things that kind of gets back to you, and they're saying things that just aren't true, and you know they're not true. Uh, perhaps they're trying to just pull you down because it'll elevate them. And uh, I mean, take a ministry situation. You feel called to the mission field, and you go plant a church in a foreign land. You get it started, and you get it on its feet, and you appoint some local leaders, and you move on to another one because you want to, you want to plant another church because that one has been such a great inroad for the gospel. I'm going to go do that again in another place. And uh, then word gets back to you that back at the first church, there have been these other people that have come in since you left, and they're talking bad about you. The church planter who got it all started. And you hear what they're saying, and you know that what they're saying is just not true. They're trying to tell the church there that they need to go a different way, and it's a better way. It's not a better way. In fact, it's a way that's going to compromise the very foundation of the church and the gospel. It's going to destroy everything that has been established in this young, early church. You are the target. Because if they can discredit you, they feel they can persuade the congregation to fall in line behind them. Well, I tell you that because that's exactly what's happening in the Corinthian church with Paul. The relationship with the church... Um, that he started is now being strained because there have been these people who have come in and discredited Paul who is away planting other churches. Chapter 10, where we are today, begins really an abrupt change of subject. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that chapters 8 and 9 are about generosity, giving, great passages on uh, Christian stewardship. And then all of a sudden, chapter 10 is just like... Forget that, we're moving on to a whole new subject. And he begins to address the issues in the Corinthian church where these Judaizers, these false teachers, have come in to discredit him. He returns to this subject that he brought up earlier in the, in the book. And uh, he wants to take it on. So let me read the first couple of verses. He says this, Now I, Paul... Myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul, in these opening verses, and as what's going to follow on, is concerned about his reputation with the church. Because he knows this, your reputation is not just about you. Your reputation, Paul's reputation in the church is not just about Paul. It, it, it could appear as you read this passage that he's just sticking up for himself. Hey guys, I'm not that bad of a guy. Come on, don't believe these guys. Uh -uh. He knows that if his God-given authority is dismissed or discredited, the future of this church will suffer. And perhaps because of the strategic uh, geographical location of Corinth, it could spread to other churches in the area. So there's a lot riding on it. 
Paul's reputation has far-reaching consequences for this early church movement. How many churches, you know, I thought about this, how many churches and ministries have been wrecked because the reputation of the leader, the reputation of one person was discredited. Maybe a false accusation, maybe a, a failure on the leader's part, but it's not just about that person. It has ramifications. And the same is true of not just leaders of ministries, but families and uh, incidents that happen in families. Our reputation is not just about us. One of the criticisms of Paul has been that uh, when he's away from the church, he writes these letters that are so bold and just sometimes cut to the heart and really just kind of expose wrongdoing in the church. And uh, you just want to go, ooh, that's a little bit strong, Paul. And yet that when he shows up, he's gentle and he's meek and he's kind and they're going, you can't trust this guy. He's and that's what, they, that's what his opponents were saying. They were saying, he writes all these severe things when he's away, and then when he's with you, he's just the nicest guy. Well, he's actually just kind of a wimp when he's with you, you know? You can't trust him. And so, Paul, well, let me ask you this. Did you know that the Bible can occasionally have sarcasm in it? Yeah, it's strange to hear that, but it can, and this is one of those places. Because Paul writes this. He says, I, Paul, Yes, I, the one who is so meek when face to face and so bold and courageous when I'm away. <laughs> In other words, he's identifying, I know what they're saying about me. I've heard what they're saying about me. I'm the one who's going to take this on. And I want you to know there's a reason, Paul is telling them, for my gentleness and meekness when I'm with you. Warren Wiersbe writes this about the passage. He says, when Paul founded the church at Corinth, his purpose was to exalt Christ and not himself. He wanted his converts to trust the Lord, not the servant. So he deliberately played down his own authority and ability. How ignorant the Corinthians were, even after all that Paul had taught them, they failed to realize that true spiritual power is in meekness and gentleness, not in throwing one's weight around. I mean, would you agree with that? That real spiritual power is in meekness and gentleness, not in lording it over or exerting authority. We walk with the Lord in truth and honesty and integrity so that the light of Christ shines through us. And when people speak falsely about us, there's a call to us. When they speak falsely about the Christ that we serve, when they challenge the very heart of the gospel, there is a there's something that rises up, even within the meekness and gentleness and kindness of the Christian spirit that says we must take them on. I truly believe in the church today that there are spiritual battles being won by the enemy because the church just simply will not engage in the fight. I think we need to fight. Amen? It doesn't sound like you're too sure about that. I think we need to fight. Look what Paul says to Timothy, 6.12, 1 Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So let me ask you, do you like a good fight? <laughs> I guess that's personality driven somewhat, right? 
Some people just cherish a good fight. Can't wait for the next one. Some people just shy away from any kind of conflict. They just rather not get involved. Paul is uh, explaining in this passage. And this is kind of the setup for the next spiritual warfare passage. One of the premier spiritual warfare passages in all of Scripture. Because Paul says, I'm going to fight this because there is so much at stake. And here's how I'm going to do it. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. As you read through that, you see lots of military references, if you will. Taking captives and uh, punishing those that uh, are the enemy and um, using weaponry, engaging in warfare. One of the things I think that we really must discern from the passage is this. We choose our weapons when we engage the enemy. They're either going to be fleshly weapons or they're going to be divinely powerful weapons, but it's up to us to choose the weapons in which we will engage the conflict, the struggle, the opportunity. Will I choose to fight this battle with the weapons I'm most familiar with, meaning fleshly? Or will I step into the very power of God that is accessible to me now as a follower of His, as a redeemed of His, Will I step into his power and employ divinely powerful weapons? And perhaps we need to just kind of identify a little bit of the characteristics of these two types of weapons. First, uh, what do we know about fleshly weapons? Well, they're weak. They simply are incapable of the task in front of them. Let me see if any of these fleshly weapons ring a bell. Manipulation. Coercion, revenge, accumulation of power. Those who were fighting Paul in the passage were people who wanted to be the spiritual leaders of the Corinthian church. And uh, they had this power of oratory, persuasive words that they used. They were great, powerful speakers. How many churches have been led astray by great, powerful, pervasive, persuasive speakers who got them to believe all kinds of things that compromise the very gospel of Jesus Christ. It says earlier in the book that these people came with letters of recommendation. In other words, other important people said, you need to listen to these people. Here's my credentials. Follow me. They have uh, these fleshly weapons, little ability to spiritually change things for the good. I would contend that using fleshly weapons many times makes matters worse. I hope you agree. The other thing that uh, really identifies a fleshly weapon is that they seek flesh rewards. If you go back in the chapter uh, to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul identifies these false teachers, these Judaizers who want to 
lead the church down a different path as being motivated by financial gain. Did you know way back in the Bible times that preachers were motivated by financial gain? Does that still happen today? I think so. As Paul said to Timothy, he said, flee from the love of money. Other flesh rewards can be uh, not so overt. They can be kind of subtly deceptive. Uh, here's a fleshly reward. You want everybody to like you. Is that fleshly? I want, to, I want to use weapons. I want to use tactics that will coerce or manipulate or move people into my camp. If the approval of others is our quest, we will fight battles with fleshly weapons. What about worldly success? Uh, we want to build a great business. We want to have great influence, maybe even a big ministry. And uh, we become very good at, uh, hear me out, we become very good at cloaking our flesh in uh, spiritual language. We rationalize that building a business uh, would allow us to give more money to missions and others, of course, some for ourselves, too. We want to build a big ministry because we want to see more people in the kingdom, but we also want to increase our name. Oh, we must guard our heart. Guard our heart. Listen to this Proverb 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What is the motivation for the battle in which you are engaged? You seek rewards of the flesh. You know, one of the ways I've always evaluated my heart is to ask myself, and, and I ask the Lord, I say, uh, would I be okay if, if, if what I'm praying for, what I think ought to happen, if it turned out to the opposite, and that was your will, Lord, would I be okay with that? Would I be okay if the Lord said, you know, I hear your prayer, but I see the future. I know what's coming down, and I, I really am going to do the opposite, and I'm going to work in your heart to change you to agree with my will. Whew. Let's say, uh, let's say someone has a... Uh, a great ministry, or has a heart to build a great ministry, and they, they pray to the Lord, and they say, I just really want to be an influential pastor, and I, in fact, Lord, I'd like to be a mega church pastor, if that's okay. I'd like for you to use me and gift me in such a way that I'll be able to speak to thousands and thousands and thousands, and uh, what if the Lord hears that prayer and begins to work in that person's heart and says, you know, here's what I have for you. I, I want you to uh, work a secular job and I want you to serve in your church and I want to give your, your heart to me and let me mold you into, your, into the kind of father and husband that I want you to be and I want you to invest in your kids spiritually in such a way that you're building a legacy, a generational legacy of Christ followers because I intend to use your great-grandson to fulfill your prayer request. You ever come to the Lord and say, well, what about me? What about me? Really, that's my role to be the great-grandfather of... Really? We must be careful about cloaking our flesh in spiritual language. 
Divine weapons. What do we know about divine weapons? From the passage, we know they're powerful. We know they demolish strongholds. They set people free. Sometimes the word, well, in the passage it's fortress. I use the word strongholds in the point because many times that's the way it's translated. It's the only place in Scripture where this Greek word is used. Right here in 2 Corinthians 10. It means this military fortification. It's, uh, it's like when an army captures new territory and they send in reinforcements to solidify their position or hold on the new gained territory. And uh, they build walls and uh, perhaps erect firing positions and uh, anything to create protection over what has been captured. So the picture here spiritually is that there may be strongholds that the enemy has fortified in your life. It can be pride. You, you know there's a struggle there, but there has been this erection of um, a wall around that where you have just put your pride in there and you've said, well, I got it honestly from my parents. <laughs> That's a good one, right? I know I'm prideful, but man, you should have seen my dad. <laughs> Or lust, you know, I have, this, uh, I have this stronghold of lust and it's just because of the events that have occurred in my life and it's because of the uh, way in which I was raised in my family and then we build a wall around that to say just the way I am and Satan knows how to deceive you into believing that your strongholds are just normal natural, everybody's got one, everybody struggles, everybody is defeated about them, and so we just kind of embrace them. And You know how the enemy fortifies his strongholds? He gets you to believe something that's not true. Plain and simple. He gets you to believe something that's not true. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let this happen, right? Right? If God really cared about you, this wouldn't have happened to you. You're never going to get past this. Come on, quit trying, quit praying about it. You're never going to get past this. You're just unlucky. You got caught in a bad situation and strongholds. I want you to understand a couple of things about strongholds. Spiritual strongholds. First one is, God can break them. And I think some people just need to hear that. You are not a prisoner to that stronghold. You're not a prisoner to that thing that has set itself up against the very nature of God, against the very life of Jesus Christ. You are not its servant. God can break these things. He is powerful. He is trustworthy. He is able. All hope is in Him. I put no confidence in my flesh to do this because I've tried the fleshly weapons. Failure, failure, failure. God can break your stronghold. And then the second point, only God can break your stronghold. He's your only hope. I think sometimes people will, will try God for a while and... Uh, but sometimes, sometimes breaking a stronghold is a very uh, hurtful thing. Anybody ever been there? 
Breaking a stronghold. God is not just going to put a band-aid on it. God is not going to just say, well, okay, I'm going to just wave my magic wand and it's gone. Sometimes the strongholds have deep-seated, long roots in them, and He is going to make us walk through the uprooting of the source so that it can be gone and we can be delivered. Sometimes I take matters into my own hands when it comes to things like this. I get myself in all kinds of trouble trying to fix things, make things right, instead of waiting on God and trusting in Him and relying on Him. And maybe this has happened to you, but uh, a situation can be really tough and difficult and... Uh, well, how many of you are like this, like me? You, you, just, you just want to solve it and get rid of it. You just want to fix it. You've got fixers. I just... And you try this, you try that, and uh, nothing, nothing, nothing's working. In fact, you're making it worse, and then you have an idea. I'm going to trust God with this. You ever had that happen? Where you're just beating your head against the wall in a situation, and you go, wow. I should trust God with this. I can't tell you how many times that has occurred in my life. I've had situations with my kids or my ministry or my own failure and I would get so discouraged about it and uh, I would feel so helpless or I'd feel so regretful or until I realized I'm just absolutely helpless fighting with these flesh weapons. Why don't I just go to the Lord about this and uh, why don't I trust Him and his power. Sometimes it's healthy parents uh, to tell your kids this, that you trust, you trust them into the Lord's care. You know, sometimes when kids are out of your eyesight, they think they can just kind of do what they want to do, and you're not going to know. I told both of my kids when they were teenagers, I said, if you're out there doing something you're not supposed to do, I'm, I'm praying that you'll be found out. If you're breaking the law, I'm praying you'll get caught. I can't watch over you all the time. Oh, but I know who can. And I'm going to put you in his hands. And I'm going to pray. And I've seen God reach my kids. I've seen, I've seen him resolve conflicts and difficulties. And uh, I've seen him love me in the midst of my discouragement sometimes. There's so many weapons. I thought about, okay, let's talk about those divinely powerful weapons. And there, I, so many came to my mind. And uh, I'm just going to talk about two. These two weapons, I think if we get this, that there's this light that can um, shine through our life that can uh, bring about the spiritual victory that we have in Christ the first one is just truth. The enemy establishes his uh, bulkhead, if you will, in your life by telling, uh, getting you to believe lies. I love this book that I've used over the years of my ministry, Robert McGee's book, Search for Significance. And uh, it just centers around four lies. And I wanna, I'm just going to share, share with you these four lies that people believe today, and it debilitates them. It stops them in their tracks. The first lie is this, I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. You ever believe that? 
I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. Anybody a perfectionist in here? That you just have to have it just right and just everything's lined up. You're organized probably. And you just, I have, you hold yourself accountable and you hold everybody else around you accountable. It's called the performance trap. Lie number two, I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. I need to be liked. I'm an approval addict. I need everybody to like me and I'll do whatever I need to do because unless people like me, I'm not worthy of a, as a person. A lie. Another lie. Those who fail deserve to be punished. I have a failure. I, I have a sin in my life. I, I, may, I trip up and I, I really do need to be punished. I really do need somebody to let me have it. I need God to let me have it. That's a lie. And the fourth one, I am who I am. I can't change. How many married couples have said that to their spouse that they're fighting with? Hey, you married me. <laughs> you know what I was like before you married me. I am. I can't change. Or I have repeated failures in the same area of my life. I am what I am. I can't change. And we live in shame. All lies. But people believe them. People are guided by them. Their lives are dictated by them. They enter relationships because of them. But in Jesus, none of those are true. I am fully forgiven by His grace. I don't have to meet self-imposed performance standards. I am fully accepted by His grace even if others don't approve of me. Because of grace, I am deeply loved by God Himself and I can stop punishing myself. I am a new creation because of grace. I, I am changed. I can let the shame go in my life. And when I get in tough situations or when I'm counseling with people who are in tough situations, I always ask them, what's the truth? Does Jesus deeply love me? Does Jesus have an answer for this? Does Jesus have the power? Does Jesus know what is ultimately the best outcome? And the answer to all of those questions is a resounding yes. Which brings me to the second weapon, faith. Maybe some of you today are facing a difficulty and uh, you're mulling this message over in your mind and you're seeing how maybe flesh weapons have been your arsenal and you want divinely powerful weapons, but you want divinely powerful weapons to get you your desired outcome of the situation. Ever been there? I want God to intervene so that I can get what I need out of this, or I can get what I think ought to happen out of this. And so faith, I'm asking you today, can you trust God with the outcome of your situation? Even if it's not what your desire is right now. Because that's faith. Faith is not believing in God to give you what you want. James says this about it. James 4, 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Yet you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You may spend it on your pleasures, or you may get your way, or you may somehow or other benefit. See, Paul is facing this very real-life battle with the church in Corinth, and he's, these people against him, they're building coalitions, and uh, he knows the gospel of Christ is being compromised. He's telling the Corinthians that I'm not going to fight my opponents the way they're fighting me. 
I'm not going to try to persuade you away from them, or I'm not going to go round up my references to show you my credentials. No, I have, I have tools at my disposal far greater than that. And I thought about that, and uh, in my own life, I asked this question. I'm asking you today, do you need to declare war <laughs> today? Declare war for your kids. Declare war for your marriage. Declare war for the temptations in your life. The enemy's been getting at you and uh, something is being spurred in your heart today. Faith and, uh, that says, my God can handle this. I'm going to stop with the flesh weapons. Those, those, those weapons of problem solving or uh, situation management or relational manipulation or emotional outbursts, those always work, right? <laughs> I'm going to put them right down. I'm going to believe the truth. I'm going to put all faith in Him. This day, this hour, I'm declaring war against the enemy. He's kept me down too long. He's fortified his positions too strongly in me. And uh, he's made me believe things that aren't true. My God, through Christ Jesus and His grace, is able to knock that down. I will no longer let those thoughts control me. Every time a thought comes in from the past and says, you're always going to be that way, there you go again. Or, you're never going to amount to anything. Or, I'm going to grab that thought. I'm going to imprison that thought. I'm going to say, that's not of God. That doesn't fall into the obedience of Christ Jesus. That's what it means. He says that. I'm going to take every thought captive. I'm going to subject it to the obedience that Christ showed when He went to the cross. Do you need to declare... War today. You may feel helpless, hopeless. You, you think you think you know how it ought to turn out, and you're hearing and you're seeing that I've got to quit imposing my will upon the Lord, and I've got to trust Him. We've got to believe the truth. You may be facing something inside today, and. Uh, I know this sounds ridiculous, but this is so true. Some people want to believe the lies. If I, if I start to believe the truth, I have to let go of this lie and this lie. So much of my life is built on this lie. I can't help but be an addict. Look at the family I was raised in. You don't know what happened to me when I was a kid. I have to be this way. Lie. Because I made a bad choice. Married the wrong person. Grew up in the wrong family. I don't have any hope. Lie. Do you need to declare war? Father, in these closing moments... No doubt all across this congregation, sometimes whether we admit it or not, we know that there are those places in our life. Routines sometimes, even patterns and flesh patterns that we just allowed to reside there when Jesus Christ has actually set us free from them. And uh, 
we don't really have the faith to believe that life can ever be different. And uh, I am praying, Father, for the rise of faith in the hearts and lives of people facing these kinds of conflict. And whether it be a situation in their lives, situation in their family, or a situation in their heart. And Father, you do not want us debilitated. You want us free in you. You want us set free. You want us to know that you have provided, you go before us, you go behind us, you accompany us through this journey. We have access to divine, strong, powerful weapons. And sometimes we just take a beating needlessly. I'm praying, Father God. I'm praying that we will rise up in faith, truth, and proclamation of the gospel. In Christ we pray. Amen.